I would like to tell you my story. It really began two years ago when I came home early from work and, well, I won't bore you with the age-old story. Let it be said that I went to the bedroom to change and found my wife in bed with another man. We stared at each other. I turned slowly, closed the door and left the house. I never spoke to her again. To be fair, it was a quickie divorce, uncontested, and we'd split the proceeds of the house sale, our only asset down the middle. Thank God there were no children. But I felt empty, a boat without a rudder. I didn't know what to do next and had already given up my job due to depression. I wanted both a new challenge and a time of peace to rediscover myself. I will therefore tell you something which I did which was counterintuitive. I decided to open a bar. The truth is, I fell in love with the secluded basement boozer the moment I saw it. The position for a business was hopeless. It was in a side street off the beaten track and surrounded by offices and commercial premises. On one side was an estate agent, above was a bank, and on the other side an accountant's office, and so on. Not a residential home for about a hundred yards. Passing trade would be zero, just as I wanted, because I didn't want a thriving bar full of bustle and noise and drunks. I wanted an excuse to hide away with the pretense that I was earning a worthwhile living. As long as I could cover the rent and other costs, I'd be happy. And so it was. It was the perfect pub in miniature. Access from the pavement was down a spiral cast iron staircase straight into the single room bar. <laughs> I enjoyed fitting it out, banning anything which was intrusive or distractive. A no-go area for mindless TV screens, happy hours, loud music or anything that entice in parties, like hen and stag do's. It was my den, and those who entered came to escape the helter-skelter world of the big noisy city. An oasis of calm which allowed the world to rush on by. And indeed there was no rush of punters. It became popular with illicit lunchtime lovers. Those coming in for a quiet, find a quiet corner in which to do a shady deal. The after work drink by husbands trying to delay returning home. And a few res residents from the far reaches of the neighbourhood who proudly called it their local. Same faces, using the same chairs, chewing the fat quietly to themselves. All of them had one thing in common, a determination not to break the peace of the place. A good publican also knows when to talk and when to stay quiet. Sometimes a customer wants to spill out his heart or engage in small talk as a distraction from his inner demons. But there was never any of them, the I'm fine, how are you? type of shallow conversations or the dreadful banal conversations you get in barbers like going anywhere nice on holiday this year 
there seemed to be an unwritten rule that people kept themselves to themselves. This was not a pub for politics, religion or contentious subjects. This was a pub for those who enjoyed being in their own skin and valued privacy. No questions asked, no platitudes given. As for me, I hid away cleaning glasses, polishing the bar, microwaving meals and reading my book. Sometimes, with their permission, I would play softly some Brahms, Handel or Chopin, but only if all the customers agreed. In many ways, it was the perfect gentleman's club without being a club. And yes, apart from love trysts, customers were predominantly male. Three months after opening, I benefited from three new customers, though I didn't notice them at first very much. They seemed to have something in common, and yet they sat apart and did little except stare about them. The exception was the tall, dark, foreign-sounding man, who, like so many customers, was a creature of habit. He always sat in the same seat, a stool furthest down the counter, and unlike the other two, spent much of his time immersed in a book. The bar was seldom crowded, and that particular seat was the most inconspicuous and least comfortable. There was a low beam at that point, making the ceiling slanted and low, so it was hard to stand up there without bumping your head. And yet the man was tall, but for some reason he preferred that cramped, narrow spot. My theory was that maybe it was because it faced the door and he could monitor who came and went. But is so the logic, for it escaped me. Maybe he sat there out of force of habit, nothing more. He always had the same drink, a pint of beer and read his book, though at times I had a feeling the book was more a shield to cut dead any questions or conversations. Often I caught him staring at me. Oh, maybe that was just my imagination. He was just staring blankly into space, I suppose. Just thinking. Either way, I ignored his stares, busying myself cleaning the bar. After half an hour, having finished his beer, he usually raised his hand an inch or two and ordered a whiskey. Always the same brand. <laughs> Indeed, a man of habit. He usually read for another half hour, then stood up, paid his bill in cash and left. To be honest, I never really registered this guy and didn't even know his name. That changed one Wednesday evening when two new faces came into the bar. Two middle-aged men obviously determined to have a fun night out. They stood out immediately because they were boisterous, in your face. They'd obviously already had a few to drink and were jolly. They ordered a bottle of wine paid by on a direct debit card and sat down in the corner to chew the fat. <laughs> then one had a typical phone conversation, which I've heard time and time again. A wife, one of their wives called to find out where they were. <laughs> they gave her the runaround, wound her up and then said they were in my bar. Everyone was listening to the conversation. The husband then said he would prove where he was and would take a photo to send her. He stood up, the flash went off and he sat down again. 
The man at the end of the bar beckoned me over. And no photos, no photos. I don't like my photo being taken. Picture must be deleted. No, it must be deleted. The other regulars showed equal annoyance. I told him I would handle the matter and went over to the men and explained the situation. I was polite, courteous, unconfrontational. They were not. Maybe it was the booze, but they objected. It's a free world. Uh, we'll take photos of who we want. If your mate doesn't like it, he can leave. And so on and so on and so on. I'm sure you can imagine the type of argument that ensued. I explained that the bar was a hideaway for those who sought privacy and would be appreciated if they drank up and left. It was then that I felt rather than saw someone behind me. It was my end of bar regular. Don't, don't blame the star. I, I'm, I'm the one who objected to the photo. If you could delete it from your camera, it would be appreciated. It simply disturbed my, my reading. Then the row escalated. My regular remained calm, in full control of his emotions and yet resolute. In comparison, the two strangers seemed spoiling for a fight. They worked themselves up and the situation turned ugly. I failed to pour oil on troubled waters. In the end, my foreign regular passively agreed with the suggestion that they should conclude their argument outside. All three left the bar together and I heard them climb the iron spiral staircase. I sat down on the stool and waited. It was oddly still outside and I couldn't hear a thing. About ten minutes later the door opened and my foreign regular strode in alone. Everything is okay now, he said. Those two won't be showing their face here again. Well, what in the world happened? No, nothing, nothing actually. We talked it over and they went, went home. His answer was so matter-of-fact, so bland, so unusual. I could think of no response. He was so self-contained, so focused, that no further comment seemed appropriate. He went back to his book and left half an hour later and indeed the two irate customers did not come back. The following evening was very quiet for a Thursday. My foreign regular was reading his book at the end of the bar as usual and two other regulars were sitting at other tables staring into space. It was lovely and quiet. You have something uh, we, we want, said the foreigner in a quiet voice. I'm, I'm sorry, what can I get you, I said. Oh, well, no, we, we, we have it already. We have found peace, solitude, in which we can hear our thoughts in, in a crowded city. It is a lovely bar. Well, thank you, I said. Kind of you to say. But who is we? He nodded in the direction of the two other drinkers, and I saw they were staring intently at me. I would not deny it unnerved me, but I said nothing and turned back to the foreigner. We, we were just discussing what a lucky find your bar has been. 
Again, I said nothing. Confused by what he was saying, I thought it best to say nothing and appear to have understood. But in truth, I didn't. This is why oh, we were irritated by the two men last night who, who took the photographs. Uh, they interrupted our thoughts. So, so, so please excuse my intervention. But it's I who should thank you, I said. But I didn't want you to get into a fight for my sake over something so trivial. Oh, no, there was no, no, there's no fight. Uh, there are many ways uh, to win an argument, and, and fisty cuffs is probably the worst of all. I simply paid them to go away. You did what? Oh, we we value our solitude. Our peace has a value, a price. Those two were intrusion into our sanctuary. So what better use for my money than to pay them to go away in, in peace? I said nothing for a while, allowing the silence to do the talking. You said earlier you were talking to each other, I said. But I've never seen the you or the other gentleman say a word to each other. But, but we have been talking on the stop, uh, nevertheless. You, you see, we are a small group of people with a, a unique gift. Uh, we, we, we can hear thoughts. You, you mean you are mind readers, I said. Oh, no, 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 no. That, that is, that's uh, too crash, crass. No, no. Uh, likewise, sometimes people mistakenly think we have mystical or mystery powers. Maybe we have a spiritual gift. Oh, I, I know others poke fun at us and say we must be half a betazoid, <laughs> like Diana Troy in Star Trek. No, uh, all, all such ideas are wrong. We are simply ordinary people who have learned to keep our minds quiet so that we are more sensitive to sounds around us, sounds which are... Uh, too often drowned out. We, we, we can hear each other. Or, or maybe it is simply we have come to know each other so that we know what each other is thinking. Or whatever the explanation, your bar is the perfect place for us to chat. Oh, that's really interesting. Can you read what I am saying, uh, Mr... I, I'm sorry, I don't know your name. It is uh, Jones. Oh, is that your real name? Uh, it, well, it, it is if you want it to be, to be honest. Uh, the Lloyds find such labels a distraction. Names mean nothing uh, when, you, when you're trying to read thoughts, so we give them no importance. But, but in answer to your question, maybe I could read your thoughts if I tried. But it would be an intrusion to try. But, but what, what is interesting, what I can say is that some of our group, uh, we call ourselves the Lloyds, in tribute to our founder, Ridge Lloyd, who sadly passed on. Uh, anyway, some of us believe that thoughts have material substance. Uh, what we think and what we do are the same. Maybe that's possible. It is a concept the Lloyds are exploring. 
He went on enthusiastically for a while with the other drink drinkers nodding in agreement with what he said. Then he added, I, I, no, we, we, we would like uh, to ask a favour. Well, uh, if I can, I will, I said. Uh, th this weekend is a bank holiday and the Lewits take advantage of these long weekends uh, to meet up for a chat uh, to practice. There will be about ten of us. Uh, we were... We were wondering if we could have exclusive use of your bar from tomorrow evening until Tuesday morning. I, I, I know it's a big ask, uh, but I think I can guarantee we won't be noisy. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> I agree on that point, but I guess I could exclude other customers if it helps. And you can guarantee a certain spend, I said. Uh, well, this is kind want to exclude all subliminal thoughts. Anything in close to proximity to us can interrupt communication between Lloyd's members. We, we, we do not wish to be rude, but could we literally have the bar to ourselves? Well, you mean exclude me? No, well, that, that, that'll be difficult, I said. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, we, we understand. But it would be so much to us. And uh, we understand your, your security concerns. But, but may I ask, how much are you likely to take over the bank holiday? Uh, worth, for example, will I be correct to guess a, a thousand pounds? <laughs> well, I think that would be optimistic. Uh, definitely wishful thinking on my part, I said. Well, okay, well, uh, let's say... If the Lloyds paid you double up front, say £2,000, would, would, would that be fair? I was taken aback. He obviously read my thoughts, so he added, Well, also, we'll also include £500 as guarantee for stock. And on Tuesday, we'll add a further £1,000 as a thank you. Th thank you for trusting us. W would that be fair? We went back and forth for a while and eventually said I would sleep on it and he was welcome to come back in the morning for a decision. He was pleased and stressed there was no pressure as there were other options of what he called quiet houses which the Lloyds could use. When they left I thought the matter over and could see no problem. In fact my takings without their bookings would probably be less than £500. Okay there was a small security risk but they certainly seemed a peaceful bunch. And in any case, I was literally being rewarded for doing nothing. Also, running a bar on your own meant taking time off was a problem. Here was a chance to escape for a few days and be paid for doing it. So when we met the following morning, the deal was done. As a gesture of goodwill and to overcome my anxiety, he used his credit card to immediately transfer £2,500 into my account. I was staggered. I willingly gave him the door key and said the bar would be his as from 5pm. We shook hands and agreed to meet at 9am on Tuesday morning. I had planned to go away but in the end decided to slob out in my flat, sleep in, sunbathe on the flat's tiny roof garden and gross out on box sets. Bliss.
Okay, I, I was tempted to go back and check everything was okay, but in the end decided to resist temptation. At 9am on the dot on Tuesday, I walked back along the side roads towards my bar <laughs> and was pleased to see it was still standing. Well, what a relief, relief that was. There certainly seemed to be a lot of police around, but I dismissed that as yet another security alert. I was, though, more concerned that the door was unlocked, but assumed Mr Jones must have arrived early. I walked in, and everything seemed in order, and no one seemed to be in the bar. Are you the owner? I was wrong. There was a person seated on the small seats in the corner. Then I saw another figure standing by the entrance to the beer storage area. Well, uh, yes, I am, I said. But I'm sorry, the bar does not open until midday, so I must ask you to leave. Are you friends of Mr Jones? The seated man came over and showed me his warrant card and introduced himself as Inspector Timms. He did not introduce his colleague standing by the storeroom. I started to feel uneasy, but nothing seemed amiss. He asked me to sit down and he probed about what had happened in the bar over the bank holiday. I saw no reason not to explain the full story. And yet the more I spoke, the more I realised how far-fetched the story sounded. I knew the inspector did not believe a word of it. So you gave the keys of the bar to an imaginary friend called Mr Jones. Or was it Mr Smith? who was a mind reader, and uh, well, he certainly saw you coming. Well, it was a Mr Jones, I said, and he wasn't, he isn't imaginary, and he isn't a mind reader. Anyway, I'm not sure what this has got to do with you. You can ask him yourself when he arrives. Well, that could be a long wait. Shall I show you what it's got to do with me? We got up and walked into the small back room. There was a terrible mess, like there'd been an earthquake. I stood there in absolute shock. What, what on earth has happened? Look up! I did. There was a vertical hole where the ceiling had been. Further up the shaft I could see torches and people talking. Hmm. I have a sneaking suspicion that your mystery friend, Mr Jones, will not be coming back to the bar very soon. Judging by an initial assessment by Lloyd's managers, this could be the biggest heist in British history. A whole weekend to drill a hole into the bank's vault might explain what this has got to do with you. I was speechless. He went and sat back in the bar. I felt cold, numb. Oh, by the way, there is an envelope on the bar for you. Hope you don't mind while I opened it. I took the envelope from him. It contained £1,000 with a note saying, A further £1,000 as promised. Lloyd's. Hmm. A further 
£1,000, I noted. What else have they given you for this Lloyds Bank robbery? I mumbled an answer. I was too shaken to speak. No, no worry. I've already checked your bank and I see on Friday you had a payment coming in for £2,500 from a hidden account. It was flagged up as Lloyd's. Funny that, you know, the name of the bank that has lost millions, if not billions, from its vaults, thanks to a hole dug from a bar. Your bar. Again, I didn't know what to say. Well, I think you'll agree it doesn't look good for you. I nodded. Well, let us move on to the more serious issue. I looked at him aghast. What could be more serious than a bank robbery? Well, well, that is what I want to establish. It's what we really do need to discuss. On Wednesday, you served two men a bottle of wine. Look, I run a bar. I serve drinks all the time, I said. I can't remember one customer buying a drink. What's this got to do with a heist anyway? Well, let me refresh your memory. At 9.30pm, you served a bottle of £19 wine. I know, because that payment was also flagged up by our police audit of your bank account. You see, that drink was bought by two undercover police officers. Friends of mine, as it happens. They were monitoring a gang of bank thieves. Real professionals. Do you remember them now? Well, uh, yes I do. Uh, if they are who I think they are, I said, there was some trouble. They took a photo which annoyed Mr Jones and um, my request went outside to settle their differences. I, I don't want trouble in my bar. And what happened then? Well, nothing, I said. They went out, Mr Jones came back and I never saw your friends again. And you didn't ask your imaginary friend, Mr Jones, what happened to them, I suppose. No, I didn't ask Mr Jones. If you're so interested, why not ask them yourselves, I said. Well, you see, I would, but they're indisposed. To be precise, we found them stuffed down a sewer access manhole less than 20 yards from your pub. Their throats had been cut. I went over to the bar, sink, and was violently sick. I came back and we both sat in silence. I'm, I'm tr sorry, I, I'm truly terribly sorry, I, I mumbled. Well, at least it proves that Mr Jones existed if the gang is being watched by undercover police officers. Well, yes. Well, as I said, they are my friends. I know their families, so it'd be fair to say I'm mightily upset. As for being in your pub, it certainly does not prove Mr Jones existed. Maybe they were watching you. All I can be certain of is that you couldn't have got into that vault on your own. You must have had accomplices. There was another long silence. 
Maybe Inspector Timms is waiting for a confession. What I do know is that if your story is true, offered the inspector, you were very lucky not to have popped back to check your bar during the weekend. You would certainly be in a sewer by now. I did not reply. Maybe Inspector Timms was trying to scare me. If so, he succeeded. Well, I think it's best we continue our conversation back at the police station. You do have an alibi, I hope, for the weekend. I stared at him blankly. Ah, no good. Not good at all. Well, come on, I... I suggest you leave the bar key to me as I suspect you will not be returning that quickly. Oh, just one more thing. <laughs> you sound like Columbo, I, I muttered. No, 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 more like Sherlock Holmes, actually. You see, I notice you are red-headed. Well, in a minute you're going to tell me that it's a crime to have red hair as well, I, 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 I said. No, no, no. You're in enough trouble already. However, at your trial, I'm sure the press at least will pick up similarities between your bizarre story and that of the Red-Headed League short story. Come on, time to go. And so, here I am, in Wormwood Scrubs, awaiting sentence. My trial certainly gained worldwide media coverage, and Inspector Timms was right. The media did pick up on the Sherlock Holmes link. The headline writers had a field day with the red-headed league aspect. I have not had a chance to read the story myself, but Timms says I'm going to have plenty of time over the next 20 years or so to do so. So at least you have now heard the facts, and they are the facts. For to quote Sherlock Holmes himself, once you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth.